Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. While we're talking about jokes, did you guys hear the one about the Spanish magician? No, I haven't heard that one. He got up on stage and he went, uno, dos, and then he disappeared without a trace. <laughs> God damn it. I hate you, Jordan. That's from one of the dads on Eli's baseball team who has like mountains of these. Like he'll walk up to me every time he sees me with another one. All right. Here's one that my daughter loves. Knock, knock. Who's there? I know an old lady. I know an old lady who? Hey, Jordan, I didn't know you could yodel. Oh, 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 wow. <laughs> oh, wow. I know an old lady who? That is worse than the low bar I have set over these many months. So there's an old, there's an old baseball joke. A guy walks into a bar with a dog and the guy says, if I can get this dog to talk, will you give me a free beer? In fact, give me and the dog both a free beer. And the bartender says, yeah, sure. So he says, what's the consistency of sandpaper? And the dog goes, rough, rough. So then the guy's like, oh, that's so stupid. He says, all right, well, listen to this. He knows sports. He's like, who's the greatest player of all time? And the dog goes, Ruth, Ruth. And the guy throws them out of the bar. And the dog looks at the guy and says, you think I should have said DiMaggio? <laughs> Eight to shoot. Hall, the runner. Loose ball. It's good. With 4.4 to go. Shannon. Don't want to fall. Shannon from the corner. It's over. Gonzaga. The flipper still fits. The cry goes up both far and near for underdog. 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 Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my goodness, I ain't even in the guys' league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog. Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced. And on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, George, the dream is alive. With speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder. Underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Hey, it's me, Tom Haberstroh. I'm back from vacation. I know you guys missed me. Peter Keating, Jordan Brenner. How did you even do the show without me? Who are you? Tom. I wasn't quite clear from that intro. Who let this man back in the studio? Security, security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I waited all this time 
just for the Boston Red Sox to turn around their sea. And they stood pat. They basically are going to take, you know, the whole World Series now. They're not selling off J.D. Martinez. I feel like the Red Sox are right where you want them, a three-game win streak. That's why I'm back in the driver's seat. Welcome to the Underdogs Podcast. This is a trade deadline recap special. We're going to talk about baseball. We're going to talk about fantasy football wide receivers break breakdown. We're going to go next gen stats. We're going pro football focus. We're going deep into the wide receiver core to give you some hints on where to go uh, for your pass catchers in this upcoming season. We're also going to revisit our most passionate of topics on this show bachelorette lots to get into on that i finally caught up you guys but let's get into this baseball stuff Whew, we thought it was going to be a sleepy trade deadline a couple like deals here and there and then boom the floodgates open we had what i think tim kirkshen said was perhaps the biggest trade ever i know getting eric hosmer on the red Sox. how do you top that <laughs> it's easy jordan you get tommy fam <laughs> And send Christian Vasquez. Those have to be like you can get excited about Juan Soto, or you can get excited about prospects. But by far the most boring haul of any team: Eric Hosmer <laughs> and Tommy <laughs> Pham. And I'll tell I'll, you know since since you're starting to grind my gears with this, I'll, I'll tell you that's what I. I mean, you can make an argument that Juan Soto is worth anything it takes to get him. You can make an argument that the haul in prospects that some of these teams got by trading for big contracts or big stars is worth it. You can't make an argument that teams with billions of dollars of cash lying around have any excuse for going out and eh, acquiring some middling level talent to plug some holes for a while till they decide what they're really about. Why did the Red Sox get rid of Mookie Betts? Oh. If we're, we're going to watch as Boston fans in 2022 is Tommy Pham. That's poor performance. That's poor performance, Mikey. I will be at uh, Fenway in about a, a week and a half, and we'll look forward to asking Mr. Fam about his uh, fantasy football team. Yeah, let's bring him on to the show. I'd rather talk about that than uh, Mookie Betts. Yes. Please, please. It, it, what was it? Uh, Josh Beckett and Carl Crawford that we sent over there to the Dodgers, too. I mean, it's just... The Josh Beckett reference on the pod. That's excellent. Hey, now, you're talking a World <laughs> Series winner. What was the last time the Mets won a World Series? Oh, yeah. It's been a while since maybe what 86? Ew, ew, are you turning into some kind of Yankees fan? Ew, what is that? That's what oh, Yankees fans do. Yankees fans stomp around and say 27, 27 championships. Speaking of turning into something, ew, ew, are you turning into some kind of 16 year old girl? What was that? I'm going to save that for the Bachelorette segment. It's been since 1986 since I've heard the term ew on, uh, in my <laughs> ears. So thank you for that, Peter. Well, I think we're bearing the lead here. The biggest thing that happened at the trade deadline is the Yankees now have two Trevinos. And they got rid of Joey Gallo. This was, a, this was quite a day to be a Yankee fan. It really was. Until the last trade, and I'm still confused about that one. Jordan, what was your reaction to the sad, I mean genuinely sad, parting interviews that Joey Gallo made as the deadline approached. He gave a couple interviews saying that his parents had offered to come help move his stuff. And also when the interviewer, I think to be nice, to try to lighten things up, the interviewer 
asked a kind of jokey question about whether he's hearing it from Yankee fans in the streets of New York. Yeah, and he said he doesn't go out. And Gallus, he, he didn't, he wouldn't even, he doesn't, he didn't even go outside. He doesn't show his face. It's, it was, it's actually it, really sad. It is sad. You should get this guy's recommendations and tips from Bobby Valentine. I really do feel for guys in sports who struggle that way, especially when it's like not an effort issue. It's not like he's not trying and then people boo him because they're not happy with the results. But like clearly no one is less happy with the results than Joey Gallo himself. It's got to be incredible pressure, incredibly disappointing to go out there and perform like that. I really do hope that he finds something in L.A. where he'll he. He won't be the only left-hand hitter who can't put the bat on the ball. I was going to say, uh, there's only one other team in the majors. In fact, they're the only ones now willing to regularly play multiple guys who can't hit 180. And that's, of course, the Dodgers. So he can go hang out with Mac Munce, Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger. And, and, um, and the thing about Gallo is he didn't even really do anything all that different when he got to New York. I think if he just gets 600 plate appearances in a season, a player like that- If he just gets 600 plate appearances. Well, that's what he was getting in Texas, and he hit 40 home runs a year. He was getting plenty of playing time. Oh, Jordan, you know the wrong way to use Joey Gallo is as a pinch hitter. He's going to get six at-bats a week and strike out in five of them, and then he's going to be psychologically toasted. Peter, he was a starting player almost up until- last week and they just couldn't tolerate it anymore. He was getting plenty of playing time. His He wasn't even walking anymore. Everything is down. Let me qualify what I, I meant to say. If he got 600 plate appearances in a place far, far away from, from New York City. So, I mean, if there were a major league team in Tacoma or Chattanooga, he'd be, he'd be great. Listen, I want to give the people, the listeners out there, a little peek behind the curtain. Before the trade deadline, our text messages, our group chat was filled with Lou Trevino propaganda. Sweet Lou. Sweet Lou was your sleeper pick at the trade deadline, Peter. And it made my heart combust, just turn to dust when he was traded to the Yankees because I was buying Lou Trevino stock in the group chat. You were selling. You were like, hey, get on the bandwagon. Because this guy might have a 6.34 ERA, but he is going to be a stud for whoever picks him up. And sure enough, it's my hated Yankees. We've talked a lot about batting average on balls in play, which is driven largely by luck and which regresses to the mean. Before he came to the Yankees, Lou Trevino had allowed a batting average on balls in play, a BABIP of 468. One out of every two balls that anybody laid a bat on was finding its way past the infield <laughs> and getting a guy on base. That's why he had an ERA of six and a half. His ex-FIP, okay, fielding independent pitching, which adjusts, which is basically just a measure of strikeouts, walks, and the ex- expected hits, okay? So it it adjusts for the number of home runs that go out on fly balls, which is also really subject to luck. Basically what your ERA should be if you strip out of it. What your ERA should be was 2.86, stripping out everything else. Whoa, half of that. The underdog part of this whole trade, by the way, was that if you were watching the Yankee broadcast last night, 
clearly the organization had prepped Michael Kay with all this stuff because I'm sure any average fan who watches the guy walk into the game and they flash his ERA on the screen right. is wondering if they've lost his mind. So suddenly Michael Kay is talking about FIP and BABIP and whatever. Yeah. And, he, uh, and he pitched two-thirds of an inning, struck out a guy, and, you know, all is well. He induced a double play grounder, which was not turned into a double play, but that's okay because 54% of the balls that he gives up are ground balls. That is a career high. He's striking out 12.7 men per nine innings, also a career high. His sinker is obviously fine. He's in a terrible luck, terrible environment, and Brian Cashman does it again. He picks up what looks like a used part, and as we talked a lot about last week, we'll figure out how to gradually get him into the highest leverage role that is appropriate for that reliever, limit his number of times through the order, which always raises a guy's strikeouts. And they got Efros too from the Cubs. It's going to be the same thing. They have rebuilt the bullpen or added to the bullpen on the cheap. And mark my words, coming up next, Aroldis Chapman will be history's greatest sixth inning reliever. <laughs> That's what's coming up. And then you're going to see Sweet Lou closing out the games and the Yankees are going to have their bullpen set for October. And and they're all they're talking about is Frankie Montas. Frankie Montas. Yeah, I mean, how does Cashman do this every single year? How does he find trading partners to give him valuable bullpen arms as throw-ins? So we had huge trades, the Juan Soto deal. We had confounding trades like Jordan Montgomery for Harrison Bader. But guys, I want to talk about the underdog moves, the ones that might go under the radar, that aren't fully appreciated, that dovetail with the theme of our show. So guys, who are your favorite underdog trade teams or players of, of the deadline? Okay, I got one here. Mm. There's a guy who I think before this season started didn't even rank in his team's top 30 prospects list and has only been basically, I don't know, the greatest minor league player of all time this year. His name, people might not know who he is listening to this podcast, but you are going to know who he is in the next year or two because he might be the most exciting prospect in baseball. Wasn't on anyone's radar. Estuary, Estuary Ruiz. <laughs> Estuary. I'm going to butcher Estuary. this. Estuary Ruiz. He's running right into the flow. Asturi Ruiz traded in the hater deal. Now he's on the Brewers. The Brewers have a bottom six Waba at the center field position. Ruiz is going to step into that and become the next Ted Williams. Not even Ted Williams. That's a bad comp. He's going to step in. And what people say is he could be Alfonso Soriano. I'll take the over. This dude... Let me give you some stats on the guy who is not a throw-in in the hater trade, but I think he's under the radar. Here are his stats from this season. He had a 333 batting average, 467 on-base percentage in the minors, and a 560 slugging percentage, a 23-year-old who stole 60 bases in 77 games, which is a 126 stolen base pace. His sprint speed is already just in like 27 at bats, a cup of coffee in the major leagues this year. In a limited sample, he's top 10 in stat cast sprint speed, and he's already hit 13 home runs this season in the minors. So if you prorate that, to basically a full season, 26 home runs, 126 stolen bases, and he had a 
triple slash line of 333-467-560. Sign me up. Asturi Ruiz stock. Hop on the bandwagon. Let's go. I'm excited for you to get season tickets in Nashville to watch him for the rest of the season. No, he's going to be called <laughs> up and he's going to own that center field. They sent him to Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of his the season it might be the rest of his career. I'm a little concerned that he will be better at Soriano than one thing, which is striking out. <laughs> oh, have you seen his strikeout numbers this year? One to one, one to one walk to strikeout ratio in years past. It was terrible. Is that one walk and one strikeout? Hey, come on! Yeah, now. I'm, a, I'm a little concerned. He is—he's really fast, and I am surprised that I'm, I guess nobody should be surprised that the Padres trade prospects, right? But I was a little surprised that he was—I uh, should not a throw-in, but he was a piece of that deal. I'm surprised they gave up on him so quickly. If that dude is called up to the Brewers in the next couple of days, run! Don't walk to the waiver wire in your fantasy baseball league. Go get Ruiz stock because the, the Padres didn't have a spot for him. They didn't have a spot for him. So now the Brewers, who have a really bad center field position, what is Tyrone Taylor? We have a Dante DiVincenzo situation with Tyrone Taylor, by the way. Uh, White Tyrone, he's not going to lock down that center field position. It's all Esturi Ruiz's. Peter, can uh, you somehow top an underdog move of a guy who won't play in the major leagues this year? Oh, come on. <laughs> he's the next <laughs> Willie Mays. I don't know. While the Padres are trotting out Trent Grisham, I think they could have given Ruiz more of a major league tryout. So I'm a little suspicious because they didn't, but that's good. Here's the deal. Um, Below a certain level, it's hard to distinguish among the quality of prospects, right? So below, like, is my 35th ranked prospect really better than your 67th ranked prospect? We we don't know. So you got to go for really top shelf talent, and then for volume. And so I really like what the Reds did. They they traded Luis Castillo. They traded Tyler Molly. They got back Noel V. Marte, who, yes, is a far better player than Estuary Ruiz. I'm sorry. Is he on pace for 26 homers and 100? Have you seen a 30 and 130 season? Yes, he is. He's two years younger than Ruiz. He has 15 home runs so far this year as a shortstop. 17 home runs last year, but but we, we can, I mean, whatever. It's fine. We don't have to argue about who's better. They're you both can't be- spell Ricky Henderson without Ruiz. Don't fact check that. What can you spell without <laughs> estuary? Uh, you can't spell Mississippi River without an estuary. Wow. <laughs> the Reds got 10 prospects back, including three players in the MLB Top 100. But here's what's really cool. The Reds also didn't just give up guys to unload contracts. They gave up guys that really aren't that good. They gave up Tommy Pham. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, because we're about to have a fight soon, but go on. Yes. Get your boxing gloves on. Ding, 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 ding. No, no, not on Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham hasn't hit 240 in three years. He's only 34 years old. He's a a bright up-and-comer, Mikey. They gave up Brandon Drury. Brandon Drury has home runs on 20% of his fly balls. That looks good in the counting columns. That's going to regress. Brandon Drury has 20 home runs this season. I will bet either one of you that he will not have 20 home runs from now till the end of the 2023 season. These numbers are a, a just, just a fluky fly ball mirage. Anyway, they gave up those guys, but unlike in the past when uh, the Reds gave up either good players or took on horrible contracts to get rid of other horrible contracts, they were smart about what they did. This is not like 2019 where they gave up Jeter Downs and Josiah Gray who, of course, later went on to be traded for players like Mookie Betts and Max Scherzer. 
Um, they did not get players like Yassel Puig and Matt Kemp back, which is what they did a couple of years ago. I think they're rebuilding by amassing prospects in a smart, budget-conscious but smart way, and some of these guys are going to arrive sooner or later. And that is way better than teams that are just poking around, moving kind of aimlessly, like this brownie in motion to save a million dollars here or there. I mean, what the hell are the A's doing? We talked a lot about the Orioles. I know Jordan probably thinks that they got a lot for Pablo Lopez. They got a lot of bodies, but it's not like the Orioles said, okay, we're going to trade away the guys whose contracts are up this year and keep the guys we have under control. No, they just kind of randomly traded Mancini and they traded Lopez. And they're and they're not much better off. They they were they was even the Brewers. I couldn't tell if they were buyers or sellers. So I, I think the Reds are actually doing a rebuild right. And are they cheap? Yes. But do they seem focused? Yes. Which is a lot better than just random penny pinching by billionaire owners, which is what seems to be going in in Baltimore. Whoever the owners are in Baltimore and places like the A's. I'm just wondering what is your like tangible underdog angle there? Is that the Reds? Just got some solid prospects. That the Reds will be a contender sooner than anyone expects in the NL Central. Okay, thank you. Jordan? Yeah, so one of your points was they traded away guys who aren't that good, except that's totally not true because my underdog move of the deadline was the Twins getting Tyler Molly, who, newsflash, is good and could be very good. Let's dive into the numbers a little bit with Mr. Molly, shall we? His splits this year, home and away. Home, 476 ERA, a 257 batting average against, nine home runs allowed in 64 and a third innings. Away, 383 ERA, almost a run better. A 189 batting average against, only three home runs allowed in 40 innings pitched. Also, he's allowing a 582 OPS the third time through the order which means his stuff sticks around. Lest you think this is a fluke, listen to last year. At home, he had a 563 ERA. You want to know what his ERA on the road was last year? 230. Is that less or less? It was three and a half runs better. 230, the best time to go see the dentist, by the way. (laughs) His batting average against at home last year, 270. On the road, 204. Home runs. (laughs) 19 allowed in 78 and a third innings at home last year, five in 101 and two thirds. So you may be getting a sense that maybe he doesn't pitch very well in the great American ballpark, which not coincidentally is the second best hitters park in baseball target field where he's going is 22nd. He's given up 12 home runs this year. If you were playing in target field, all games, it would only be eight. Unless you again, lest you think that this is just some luck or whatever. He has good stuff. He ranks in the 67th percentile in the league in whiff rate. So he's better than two. He's, he's getting more swings and misses than two thirds of the pitchers in baseball. 70th percentile in fastball spin. 83rd in expected batting average. And that's very consistent with his numbers from last year. Tyler Molly is 27 years old, is going to a contending team, and is going to help the Twins a ton. Mic drop. First of all, um, do you know who does go to the dentist a lot, Tom? Who? Well, Brandon Nimmo just got just set the Mets career record for being hit by pitches. So you could say he's always getting drilled. <laughs> just, oh. what, what is happening here? No, no. You can't just move on from that like no. that. There were a couple of reasons I liked the Reds moves. The layers that you went to to get to that 
punchline. That was so bad. The Reds giving up guys who aren't as good as they look. That I included Brandon Drury and Tommy Pham in there. Tyler Miley's awesome. And the Twins really- the perseverance that he's still going without addressing this. There's just no acknowledge that he made such a leap to Brandon Nimmo. He's a great fit with the Twins. I just like the fact that the Reds got more than they have in the past for players who were still under a year or year and a half of control. So they got back good prospects for Castillo and Molly. And they got back a, a boatload of them too. So I'm not, I, I don't, don't misconstrue me. I like Tyler Molly too. And, I, and for the Twins, excellent move. Maybe not as good as getting Sweet Lou in the bullpen, but excellent move. As good as Lou Trevino is, I'm not going to be celebrating Lou Trevino Day next year and raising a whole boatload of money. Maybe the second best Lou in Yankees history. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see how he does. I hope he's the second best Trevino in, in Trevino or Trevino <laughs> in Yankees history. Wait, before, before we move on, I just want to make one more underdog pick. Of course you do. I want to argue with Jordan about this guy who is injured who most fans probably think isn't even going to play this year, but he will probably be back for the postseason since 2018. Harrison Bader. 37 defensive runs saved in the outfield. <laughs> That's up there with guys like Jackie Bradley and Lorenzo Kane and, and uh, Jason Hayward. That's right, Harrison Bader. I don't know if Jordan watches Yankee games, but the last two months, Jordan Montgomery has fallen off a cliff. Wait, wait, wait. Wasn't Jordan Montgomery your, your underdog pick before the season? Yes, yes. <laughs> you and I agreed that he just needed to sequence things a little bit better, use the fastball more effectively. I drafted him for my fantasy team. I like watching him pitch. He obviously was emotional about having to leave the team. Apparently his teammates were too from the way they played after he was traded. So I think there's actually value there for St. Louis. Maybe they can straighten him out. But, who boy, he is not... He, he has looked pretty terrible for, for a few weeks. But I think he's a good pitcher. But I think Harrison Bader is a classic Yankees fill the hole uh, that they have in their team, which is center field defense, without anybody realizing just how viable a player it is they've acquired. I think Harrison Bader is going to make great fit for that team. If he gets out of his walking boot. Yes, yes. But with a with what how 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 much of a lead do the Yankees have? Do they lead the division by 50, 60 games? They don't have to worry about anything until October. I'm learning that his name is Harrison Giuseppe Bader, and his nickname is Tots. From Bronxville, New York, by the way. Speaking of homecoming, Hader was traded, Bader was traded. And we're not going to save this for any later in this show. Fantasy football wide receiver core. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
We crunch the numbers. We got next gen stats. We got pro football focus stats. We've got all sorts of um, numbers in our database. We crunch the numbers. And Peter, I want you to tell us what you learned about wide receivers in this upcoming fantasy f- football season. What are some of the gems that people can go in into their drafts in the upcoming, the next month or so with some trinkets? Give them some trinkets here. Well, there's a couple. One is, is that we looked at last week, we talked about the correlations, the relationships between some other stats and how well running backs go on to do in fantasy leagues. The correlations are mostly lower for wide receivers. They're, as you might expect, Mm. they're a little less predictable than running backs. They depend more on their context. In fact, one of the things that does relate is Wide, relie- wide receivers getting new quarterbacks. The wide new- relievers. Is wide this, relievers. Uh, Rich wide Garcia relievers. Year, stop thinking about Lou Trevino. It's, yeah. it's, we're, we're past it. So look, let me talk about one thing, which is that um, catch percentage, how many times you catch a ball that's thrown to you, is one of the few predi- things, one of the few things we can predict in NFL statistics. We've found that you can predict catch percentage by looking at a wide receiver's separation how many yards he gets away from the defenders, how deep they're throwing to him, and how much traffic he's in when he catches the ball. Um, now, there's a lot of noise here, uh, but this is something we expect to regress to the mean, like batting average and balls in place. So if you have way fewer catches than you should, considering how deep you are as a target and how much traffic you're in, then we hopefully would see you do better the next season. That some of that is a function of the quarterback too, right? If your if your catch percentage is low and you've got someone who's not delivering the ball, you may not see that positive regression if it's the same crappy quarterback, correct? Right, right, which means you might benefit even more from a new environment or an improving quarterback. But some of that is baked into your analysis in like separation numbers. So if you have a bad quarterback who's always throwing into coverage, you should not be catching that anyway. So my point is can I expect Baker Mayfield, Robbie Anderson this year to be the greatest one-two punch since Matt Stafford and Cooper Cup in my backyard here in Charlotte? Hmm. No? Probably not. But Robbie Anderson only caught 48% of the passes thrown his Infuriating way. Infuriating number of drops last which year. Which is a very low number. So, look, guys who really have the dropsies, guys who can't hold on to the ball, play themselves out of the league very quickly. If, you're, if your catch percentage is that low and you're still playing in the NFL, then there's other stuff going on, okay? Either they're throwing very deep to you, which was not the case with Robbie Anderson, or you can't get any separation at all, which he did have trouble with, or you're just having a lot of bad luck and a bad quarterback. So the guy at the bottom of that list is actually Darius Slayton. And um, he, may have, he may have dropped his way out of a starting job in, in the NFL. And in fact... He may have had the bad luck of having quarterbacks who didn't know north from south may have actually cost him his NFL job. You mean you didn't enjoy the Mike Glennon experience last year? <laughs> the quarterback sneaks on third downs. I don't need to ever see that again. But if you if you look at the guys who, who fell short of expectations by the most, yes, on average, they should improve. They have nowhere to go but up, and, and they're more likely than other players to want to be seeking a new context or have their teams trying to improve their quarterbacks. So we see... Darius Slayton, Robbie Anderson at the bottom of that list. Also, Rashard Higgins. What do we think? Rashard Higgins only caught 51% of his passes last year. Um, Do we see any hope? Do we see any room? Well, how do you think that guy feels where he gets a change in location and all of a sudden 
who shows back up <laughs> under center. It's Baker Mayfield. Although I did see on the Panthers homepage, a, uh, a practice touchdown between the two of them that they seem very excited to post. So oh, that's exciting. Now the guys at the very top of the list are some of the best receivers in football, but they're likely candidates to regress. Now look, if you catch 80 yard, uh, 80 passes instead of a hundred, that's regression. So you can still be one of the best players in the league, but we shouldn't expect Hunter Renfro to catch 80% of his passes thrown his way again. And we probably shouldn't expect Devontae Adams, unless something's changed, Devontae Adams was at 64, 65% through most of his career until last season. So that's a really interesting one, right? So you assume that the best receivers in football are going to have particularly high catch rates. But yeah, on the list you, uh, you created, it's Adams, it's Cooper Cup. Uh, Tyler Lockett was up there, right, of guys who had higher than expected uh, catch percentages. So that is pretty interesting. If you can sort of fade a little bit some of the very best receivers just on natural regression to the mean, I, it's tricky. But when you looked up Adams' career numbers and you saw that they were lower, that adds some validity, I think, to your your theories, as much as I hate to say that. There's other reasons to like these players, too. I mean, Lockett, um, Lockett had a... Air yards per target of almost 15. Right, but that was with Russell Wilson. So that's another reason to fade him, right? Right. So they're throwing very deep to him, and that that is another reason why, yeah, why he's likely to come back to earth a bit. Before I put your guy, you guys on the spot and ask you for actual underdog favorites, I want to point out there is there were only three players in the league last year that were above average in all of the categories that mattered to catch percentage. Had above average separation above average depth of target, and also um, were targeted in a lot of traffic but caught a lot of passes anyway. Um, now, two of them are had great seasons and just, uh, just changed teams, Christian Kirk and Marquise Brown. The other one is Elijah Moore of the Jets. And, mm. and he just, I mean, he had an incredible season. He did get injured. He was... His quarterback was 32nd in the league in completion percentage. But number one with Cougars. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, Elijah Moore was in the top 30% of the league uh, against man coverage, against zone, against press. Um, he had 1.75 yards per route run. And that is a really impressive statistic because he's in, uh, he only was in on 65% of the Jets' snaps. But he got 21% of their targets. So they're targeting him when he's in the game. He's going to be in the game more this season because he's not going to be hurt. Um, he's effective in traffic. He runs deep. They throw to him a lot. And um, he's my number one candidate for a breakout for this coming season for all those reasons. I mean, Tom, do you have anything more you can add to that? Yeah, I've got more, more. My guy, Rondale Moore, is poised for a breakout among breakouts. He is my sleeper pick for next season. A couple reasons why big picture DeAndre Hopkins is out for the first six games due to suspension. And also the guy you just named Christian Kirk is out of the pictures. So there are going to be targets galore for this guy. And last year he had a catch rate of 84%, which is the second highest among all wide receivers in our five-year study that we had. That spreadsheet you gave us um, this week, I actually did the search for 
Who would be higher? It's Michael Thomas, who was uh, had a pretty good run there in fantasy football pre- um, performances over there in New Orleans. Now, you might be saying to yourself, yeah, because they were basically handing the ball off to him last year, and you'd be That's right. right. That's right. His air yards per target last year, and a, as a rookie in that offense, in Kingsbury's offense with uh, – with that quarterback who needs to study more apparently in his contract, uh, his average yards per target, air yards per target was 1.1, 1.1. Think about that. His next gen stat says that on average, his air yards was one yard. So basically they're handing the ball off to him. So of course he had an 84% catch rate, right? They're basically handing it off. Last year, they just basically used him as as little swing passes, bubble screens. Uh, they've talked about trying to incorporate him more into a, a traditional wide receiver role and, and getting the ball. They, they did not use him well last year, period. So there's definitely an emphasis on getting him the ball this year, and he's he's great after the catch. Great after the catch. One thing you talked about, Jordan, last week was how it's so important to find role changes, right? Guys who are going to be used more effectively or more often in new schemes. There's no metric-based or systematic way to do that, but this seems to be the perfect candidate for that. They're announcing they're going to use him better and more heavily. Yes, they're going to put him in the slot a lot more in Christian Kirk's place, and they've already you know, hyped it. Everyone's getting hyped up. It's preseason, of course. Everyone's in the best shape of their careers, and they never look better, and they're really excited about their teammates and the system. But Rondale Moore... The only player that had even close to an air yards per target um, that is like in the same vicinity as as Rondell Moore last year was a guy named Debo Samuel. Uh, here we go. Here it is. 2020, two years ago, Debo Samuel was at 2.1 and had a yards after catch per reception of 12. Rondell Moore is not quite there. He's at 8.4, but he did outrun his expectations is his expectation expect expectation syllable wrong and fastest on the wrong <laughs> syllable there. Um, Debo Samuel, there is no other player who had the same above yards of expect expect expectation expectation than Debo Samuel. No one like he is way outperforming what you'd expect given the circumstances, but Rondell Moore did much better than the numbers suggested he might given the situation. So he had 8.4 yards after catch per reception and his expected number was 6.8. So it's not just that he's getting the ball in space. He's outperforming expectations. Rondell Moore getting way more targets next season. He's super fast. He's getting a much better situation this year. And I think if he takes off, early without Hopkins there. I think he has a lot of sticking power right now. He's ranked on fantasypros.com as the 55th ranked uh, wide receiver, 130th overall. I think he could get into the 25 range there as a wide receiver too. Even if let's say Hollywood Brown gets hurt, who knows? A lot of upside here with Rondell. I was actually going to ask you about Hollywood Brown. How concerned are you that he's just going to come in and with Hopkins out, gobble up, you know, dozens and dozens, gobs and gobs of those targets. I am going to take more. I mean, DJ Moore, probably the best Moore in football. Elijah Moore coming right up behind him. But I think, you know, Rondale Moore. Right now, in fact, right now, Rondale Moore isn't even ranked among the top three Moors. You have Sky Moore ahead of him in Kansas City right now in, in Fantasy Pro's consensus ranking. So, yes, there's more out there. So, Jordan, is it safe to say... If you want to know how Jordan really feels, get the cameras rolling. 
get the action going. More, more, more. How do you like it? How do you like it? Anyway, uh, I have a, a sleeper, <laughs> an underdog, if you will. I, I would have gone with uh, Elijah Moore as well, but someone stole him from me. But we've talked about this. This is common sense, right? One of the things that showed up is significant in terms of correlation when we looked at players compared to their their production compared to their average draft position was if they had a significant increase in in QBR from year to year. Uh, a new quarterback, either either by switching teams or a new quarterback was brought in. So looking through quarterback moves this offseason. Come on, let's hear it. How do you like it? How do you like there it? There are few that are more significant more? than Russell Wilson going to Denver. More significant. And then you look at that wide receiver room. Tim Patrick just went down with injury. He's out for the year. And so you're looking at a couple of guys who have a lot of talent, who haven't really sh- – especially – the one I'm thinking of hasn't really produced yet. So I've got my eye on Jerry Judy, who not only has the benefit of going from Drew Locke to Russell Wilson, but also ranked on the same list that you were looking at 18th among receivers and tight ends in separation last year, getting about 3.6 yards per separation per play. That's right there with Tyreek Hill. So he can get open. He's got someone who can deliver on the ball. He's obviously you know, a, a, a high draft pick two years ago. There's a lot to like about Judy. And for a guy who's going about rank, you know, consensus rankings have him about 25th, 26th. I think he can push into the top 20 this year. You think that's his ceiling or could he go even higher? I think he can go even higher. I yeah. mean, everything you just said makes me feel like he's about to, and, and the role he's playing, right? Which is this, just uh, this, this team that's expected to do a lot better and is going to rely on young stars you know, to the extent they can develop them around Wilson, just makes me feel like he's going to explode. Yeah, I think the 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 little bit of trepidation is there could be some target sharing going on with Cortland Sutton. Yeah, that's why I'm not like looking at him as a top ten guy, but top fifteen, sure. And uh, you know, monitor where he's going in terms of ADP. There's definitely a lot more breakout potential there for him than say a guy like Brandon Cooks, who's go you know ranks six spots higher than he is right now. Peter, you got Elijah Moore and Jordan. I've got Rondale Moore, and you've got Jordan. By the Jerry Judy stock. I will just mention that in 2020, two years ago, severe case of the dropsies, had a 46% catch rate um, a couple years ago, but really did much better last year. And he's going to have a lot more opportunities in this upcoming season. Best to Tim Patrick on his recovery. There's no need to fear a quaver. Underdog is here to save her. Underdog. And speaking of recovery. I have recovered from my brain melting while I watched. I caught up to Bachelorette this week. For those who are not up to speed on the Bachelorette this year and have taken some seasons off or haven't watched it at all, ever, I highly suggest you watch for just some of the madness, the human behavior, the just the constructs, all of the weird things about human behavior. You need to see how just chaotic this season is. They have two bachelorettes this season. And if you haven't listened to the bachelor data expert who is on our podcast a couple weeks ago, go listen to that. Susanna Summers, I believe. And I just want to point out that she, if you go, go check her out on Instagram, she explained the, uh, the mathematical conundrum that Jordan and I couldn't talk about last week, which is how many roses were there? But Tom, go ahead. The third episode just aired. 
Spoiler alert. Of course they had to split it up. Who would have thought that having 40 dudes compete for two women without splitting it up was a good idea? Who thought it? Who thought this was going to work out? I was so confused. Like when one, when Gabby eliminates a guy, then the guy's gone. And when Rachel doesn't like a guy, the guy's gone. I'm like, how does this make any sense? What if the girl, the other girl wants that guy around and they finally figured out, came to their senses and said, yeah, this is not working. We're going to separate the two. So there's going to be two dual competitions within Bachelorette rather than having all the men competing for the same two women. There's so much hypocrisy and nonsense. So a guy who says, you know what? I'm only here for one of these women. I'm not sure I'm into you is vilified for making a choice. And, and whereas they are perfectly allowed to the, the women to send any guy they want home. And they're, the whole point is they're deciding among them. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Breaking news. The show is not called Guys in a Room. It's called The Bachelorette. Yes, the power should reside with the bachelorettes. But not when it's power for the sake of power. In fact, when they discussed- <laughs> They're not invading Poland, Jordan. I mean- <laughs> No, no. When they discussed going to two different groups, they even said on camera, this was about taking back the power. Yes. So what is your goal? To win? Right, because that wasn't established at the beginning. All of this stuff should have been clarified at the beginning, and then they wouldn't have to have made these, these ad hoc decisions along the way. It should have been clear from the beginning. Peter, what would you want a guy to do if he's talking to Rachel and is like, you know what? I don't, I'm not really into you. I am into Gabby. Pretend? Why shouldn't he say, you know what? I'm here for the other one. Uh, is, he it that, should. is it that he some should. sort of honesty that he we want? And they he, and they vilified should. them for that because uh, her fragile ego was hurt, which newsflash, episode three only got worse. But Peter, let's go back to episode two for a second. So wait, so wait, are you, are, are, you, are, wait, are, you are you a big Logan fan, Jordan? Do you want I'm a not a fan to, of anyone? These are all wanna, sociopaths. You want a guy to <laughs> you want a guy to stay in, hoping that he can get a shot with the other woman? After these the are first, severely. I mean, these are people aiming to be D-list celebrities. It's all fake. But Peter, what, what's the what's the math question in, in episode two? Question. I'm curious. Explain this, Peter. Well, episode at, two. At, at the end of episode two, after after three men were offered, Jordan, correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, were offered roses by uh, by Rachel um, by Rachel, and they each said no. Right. Somehow. At the end of the night, Rachel and Gabby both ended up with the same number of guys. Right, which made so, no sense because they, they said they were – if someone turned down the rose, they were taking the rose away. They weren't going to allow yes. you to offer to someone else. Right. They, so They ended so, up with nine each. Right. So right. how does that so, happen? So, so here's what I was thinking. It had to be, number one, they wanted – the producers wanted three guys to say no to Rachel because three of the guys had rejected Gabby. So they wanted the, that number to be equal. So I think they gave Rachel the chance to give the first rose. Then they alternated, but they also gave her the chance to give the last rose. And then they gave her the chance to say yes, to bring Meatball back after he came back after being sent home. So I think- Is this I, what Susanna it, explained? Did she? It was, yes. And it turned out that is what happened. I'm not sure if she knows about the producer's part, but she explained the math behind it and how it basically had to be 
warped that way to fit things so that they would have an equal number of contestants at the end. And that's what I somewhat jokingly said. It was enough to make me question my faith in the whole franchise, because if you can't have mathematical honesty, you know, where is the basis for any love or relationships? Now, getting back to everything that pissed me off in episode three. Jordan, you're going to yell about women some more? How about when Rachel decides <laughs> Apparently the answer her, is yes. For her group date, you know what's a great idea to get the attention I want from the guys I want? Let's bring them to Gabby's group date. And then I'm going to complain when they're sitting off on their own and I'm not seen. You brought them to watch a different date. You sat them in a different place and then they're not – you're upset because they're not making eye contact with you? Oh, my God. What are you – Yeah. It's a cry for help right now. I was so annoyed by the fake friendship between these two where I, I really appreciated when Rachel was like pulled to the side at SoFi Stadium where it was like – she's like, oh, my God. Can you believe what – um Hayden or whoever it was said, you're a little too rough around the edges. And Rachel just lit up. She smiled so much. She was like, I can't believe he said that and that he, he actually likes me a little bit. Or That was so mean. Yeah. I'm tired of the fake friendship yeah. between these two. Yeah. Were they- Next yeah. week we're doing a drinking game. Every time Gabby says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you'll be drunk after 12 seconds. I can't yeah, listen to uh, her voice. Yeah, and, and neither can a bunch of the guys here. And I'm just – look, the editing of this show makes you think that from like one side or the other that first it was Rachel who didn't think that anyone liked her. And no, I'm never going to find anyone because they're all falling for Gabby. And then three minutes later, Gabby's having this like existential crisis about like no one's going to love me. I'm going to be the only one. And then magically nine dudes lined up for – for Gabby. And then everyone was like, Oh my God, does Rachel have anyone who loves her? Look, I know a lot of this is just constructed BS, but I just, it, it felt so contrived, so contrived more so than in years past. Well, I think that what's happening is, is that the producers are always on the lookout to exploit contestants insecurities as they make them into villains or heroes or try to shape the audience preferences. And I think what's happened this time around is that by not splitting the guys up at the beginning, they've ended up pitting the worst impulses of the women against each other. When what this whole season started out as, if you care about this stuff at all, is the <laughs> yeah. fact is the fact that these two women, whatever you think of however much of a friendship they had, had been through a really adverse, arduous experience together. So they did have some bond because the way that they were, the way they were, all the finalists were treated on the last season of The Bachelor was so God awful. So um, it had given me some hope that there was this, uh, you know, this kind of unity through adversity against (laughs) a really toxic guy and watching women unite against toxic guys or watching doofuses compete for the affection of women is interesting. It's not as interesting or as fun. You really think this is real. It's really not as interesting or as fun to watch the produce, the producers overtly try to break down one or both of the women. That's what this show has been forever. And they're all doofuses. All the men and all the women are doofuses. But 
to be to make one serious point about this. Okay. It wasn't like that when the producers felt they had some accounting to do for the um, for the racial issues that they had generated. And when they put when they made Michelle the Bachelorette in the last season of the Bachelorette, they involved her in a lot of production decisions, and that show was explicitly and authentically more from a black woman's perspective than a lot of stuff on TV. And it was great. And that not coincidentally, that was the show where the contestants, the contestants did develop genuine bromances to this day. Nate and Michelle didn't stay together, but if you look at Nate on Instagram, he's, he and Brandon have moved in together. They've become (laughs) best friends. So Yes, I did have some hope that some of those feelings that were authentic in that season would kind of make their way through the rest of the franchise. So you really think people are there for the right reasons? The right reasons, yeah. I I only hope you Peter, are. Peter, you're I a hopeless only, romantic. I, I only hope Yes, yes, you've The cynicism me. of Tom and myself is well well earned. I, I can't take any of these people seriously. You don't go on a show like this to find true love. You go on a show like this to become a celebrity. No, but Period. you can but you can watch this show to be a fan of Meatball and and be you can be let down when guys do jerky things like say they're going to take a rose from one girl or woman, should I should say, because they're interested in sticking around for the other woman. You can root against guys like that and you can root against the women having to be pitted against each other for entertainment. Yeah. So you can you, like anything. I'd like to pit you against someone for my entertainment. I'd enjoy that. <laughs> you do every week, Tom. Who should we pit him against next? Yeah, I've I've, I've got a question on. here. Michael Vaughn. This guy Ooh. Michael on the show. I don't think he's had any airtime. I should go I was, check I the was date about on to say, this. There's a Michael. Yeah, he's a 32 year old pharmaceutical salesman who uh, has. <laughs> According to the at Bachelor data, Suzanne Summers here on this on this spreadsheet, he has 931 Instagram followers, which is 3,000 fewer than the next lowest guy. And I've got to imagine he has like 38 seconds of screen time. He's on one of Gab. He's on Gabby's roster, and I was stunned when he came onto the the rose ceremony. I was like, "Who is that guy?" We're three episodes in. There's been seven hours of tape, and I don't even know who this guy. Did is. we just find our underdog? That's what I'm saying here, yes. Jordan. This was one elaborate way to say, "I." This is a penny stock, okay? Michael Vaughn winning it all. I'm in. But now we got to be open to the possibility that he's just a walk on. Sent there to balance out the number of contestants, given the shenanigans we've like the fake grandma they hired in 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 the bowling alley in episode two. Yeah, we have to make sure we have to we have to make sure he's legit. But that's excellent. Isn't this the week that Susanna also said we should start reading into who gets the dates four and five because she said the the airtime starts to get serious for the guys who are going to be who are going to be keepers, and also they start to travel, which I know right. All right, so going forward. By the way, biggest underdog of all, Jesse Palmer speaking French. Oh, who, who, what what interns do you think spent uh, the last? Can we clip that high there? Can we clip that? <laughs> or should I say, ooh la la? Like, what? How much? How much time do you think the bachelor uh, researchers or interns or whoever spent getting conversational Spanish, uh, French 
conversational smench too. Conversational. It's like that old. It's that old SNL sketch. French. Oh, 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 français. Oh, oh, oh. Just oh, oh, croissant. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's like, did they have to spell out the Je conversational French? À la bibliothèque. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. I gotta say, Jesse's doing a pretty good job. I'm not missing Chris Harrison. Not missing it. Jesse, he's doing a good job. Yeah, I have an anchorman theory, which applies to show hosts, which is like uh, somebody like Brian Williams show succeeds and he ends up making 30 or 40 million dollars a year. Then one day he disappears and he's replaced by Lester Holt and the ratings don't change at all. Right. So was there ever really ever a secret ingredient to Chris Harrison being the host for the show's success? Uh, if you watch the morning show, uh, they would beg to differ. Of course they would. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good show, well, by the way. Have you seen it? Yes, yes. Uh, it uh, it got a little weird in the second season with the COVID stuff. Didn't need to re- relive that. We've got Eric Schwer. Eric Schwer. Eric has got three kisses already with Gabby. He's probably the favorite in that competition on that side of the thing. Um, maybe Nate. Yeah, Nate. Like he Nate. actually really seems to like her. Like yeah, Jordan. He does, and he's a nice girl dad, and they got along. I I I, I, I yeah. I've got nothing against Nate right now. Take your cynicism uh, elsewhere. On the other side, Rachel, do we have a favorite on Rachel before we get into this episode where things really pop? Is she actually a pilot or not? It's driving me crazy. She is. Didn't Susanna tell us that she's not a, an actual pilot? I think Susanna, Susanna cracked a joke about it. Like we saw her getting into a plane with like, what, a single engine or a little twin engine no, plane? No, I and thought then, there was some research the, the that next- came out that she wasn't actually a pilot. Didn't have her license. And the next scene was like she was arriving across country. Yeah. So Suzanne joked about Susanna joked about that. And was like, is she a pilot? And she kind of just laughed and said that there was something to let's get on that research yeah. task. All right. I'm on distractify.com, which has to be the most credible resource on the internet. It's a red check for those of you who have been in the fact checking business. She's a certified pilot okay certified but fans are curious to know which airline the bachelorette works for and what there is to know about her day job rachel got her degree according to life and style magazine in aviation in 2021 so like last year (laughs) okay this is a little shady i gotta see if this is one of these uh pilot aviation degree mills you know like diploma mill did you see the the scene where the guy was with her and was like was talking about how he used to go with his dad to watch the planes at the airport and she and she's crying because it my wife is convinced that that he pulled a groundhog day and he'd, he'd gone through that scene like 46 times until he found out every detail and then finally pulled that out. Yes. Nancy? Nancy Taylor. Of all the things that there might be diploma mills for, or certificates that you really don't earn, if there are indeed pilot or aviation <laughs> yeah. diploma mills, that would be that would be the single worst business to establish yeah. to offer somebody meaningless degrees. Does Deion Sanders have a pilot school? You walk out of the house and I say, "Okay, now you're a Go pilot." Ahead. That's that would be that would be bad. So we, yeah, somebody's got to look into that. It's so bad, I almost don't think it's a lie, but who knows. Guys, I got to say, I think this was the most dramatic episode ever <laughs> of our podcast. Look, I'm enjoying this Bachelorette season. I'm curious to see what happens here uh, going forward. But I'm I'm so done with the whole charade of... Charade? 
Sherrod. Sherrod. Jones. Sherrod. Sherrod. Charade. The expectation, the expected, expected yards after contact per charade. I'm having a tough time. For Illuminati yesterday, I called Jeff Goodman hoops. Hoops? I was like, <laughs> I pronounced hoops like basketball hoops. Hoops. And I'm having a real tough time. This whole vacation thing really threw me off. You've been inspired by Jesse Palmer to give everything a French accent. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy the hoops. <laughs> what a charade. We are going to be following uh, Bachelorette periodically throughout the season. So deal with it. We're going to do more <laughs> Bachelorette content going forward. Elijah Moore. More, more, more. More, more, more. <laughs> Can we get the Moors on maybe Bachelor in Paradise? Get Elijah, get DJ, get Rondale all down there. What about Sky? Don't forget Sky. Sky. What's the reality show we could have? What would it be called? Less is more. Maybe <laughs> says less is more. He's pointing to the clock. All right, we got to get out of here. <laughs> when the producer says less is more, that means the show is over. Thank you for listening to the Underdogs <laughs> podcast. Go talk to your friends. Tell them about it. Uh, we're going to be covering the fantasy football season pretty heavy this year and the Bachelorette and Major League Baseball as we head into the playoffs after the trade deadline run here. Go follow at Jordan Brenner on Twitter, Peter Keating, NJ, not MJ on Twitter as well. And you can follow me at Tom Haberstroh. And thank you, Corn Puzzle, Anthony Mays, for producing this episode. Less is more. Thank you very much. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.